You're listening to Cinema Rex. It's an Iranian film podcast, but you already know that by now, don't you? Episode 9, Marzia Buruman and Muhammad Ali Talibi's City of Mice. We should tell the listeners what hat I'm wearing. Uh, Kaveh is wearing the hat of the uh, prestigious film Tehranto. Uh, academics around the world have studied this film at length. And uh, we actually have an academic with us today on our episode of the podcast as a guest. But first, Durud Bashroma, Dustan Aziz, welcome to the Cinema Rex podcast. Where we discuss, Kava, what do we discuss here? All things Iranian cinema and film and entertainment and poetry. Politics? Romance? Literature? Plumbing? <laughs> Not, eh, sometimes plumbing. Who are you? I'm Kaveh Mohebi. And I'm Farhan Moradi. And today we're joined by Dr. Maral Aguilera Moradipur. She is a postdoctoral fellow in media at the University of Toronto Scarborough, where her areas of interest include critical refugee studies anti-colonial and indigenous thought, diaspora studies, and literary and cultural studies. Marl received her PhD in English literature from Western University, has taught at King's University College and the University of Toronto Scarborough, and she is my older sister. Marl, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here today because there's so many questions about Faran I need to understand. <laughs> my first question for you is, how? And why is he the way that he is? <laughs> Probably the answer would be film and his obsession with film since childhood. And I imagine I as someone in the industry as well, you can probably relate. Oh, I can relate. I just want to know <laughs> how you best can like just tell me the juiciest story about him growing up in terms of like hot gossip or embarrassing stuff. Something that like we can really sink our teeth into to really un- get under the skin, psychoanalyze this this gentleman in front of us. You know, I he wasn't he wasn't like that. He was just honestly such a film nerd since he was a child, and we all no one really anticipated that it would result in a career. And you can imagine in an Iranian household, he he had a rough go at it um, because instead of doing math, he would be like making these the world's tiniest clay figures of entire casts of like superheroes. And then uh, eventually, again, when he was supposed to be doing math, he'd be staying up till two in the morning and saying things like, I edited all of the Lord of the Rings films into an hour and a half. And uh, it wasn't Star received. Wars. Star, Star Wars. Wars, my bad. We're like, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? And my, he, you know, it wasn't well received. It was very frustrating for my dad. And he wasn't running around chasing love interests and getting smashed and you know those <laughs> those juicy stories he was super film nerd and um i don't i don't know what kava's family is like but when you grew up in our house it was you know we had we were taught an appreciation for you know visual arts for poetry i feel like for for me i associate iranian cultures with that like an appreciation of art my family household is mo- mostly consisted of like mud fights and wet t-shirt contests for <laughs> dinner so we didn't have Before any dinner. of that Okay, so like your interest, like your areas of interest include critical refugee studies, anti-colonial and indigenous thought, diaspora studies. Can you tell me a bit about that area and maybe like what is something that you might consider a great misunderstanding or misconception or um, 
something that you would think that is like a interesting area that isn't discussed as much in modern in in the modern areas of these studies. Yeah, so uh, critical refugee studies is kind of it's a newer approach to the field. Um, it's an emerging approach or discipline to, in, in terms of refugee studies. And for, for me, all of these different kinds of studies or theory are interrelated. And it has to do with the fact that certain kinds of thought or certain origins of thought have dominated culture and scholarship. So predominantly, you know, like Euro-Western thought. And there's many kinds of uh, other modes of uh, viewing the world, philosophies of your approach to the rest of creation or how you live your life or how you view relationships. There are many other philosophies around the world for how to um, engage with others, with other uh, modes of being that are not based in, you know, capitalism or extractive modes of engaging the physical world. And so I've always been interested in in those kinds of things. And I've always been concerned with, you know, oppression and domination and why those kinds of dynamics are are built and what what who it, who gets oppressed, you know, and why what are the reasons beyond that, and also how do people push back against um, oppressions or marginalizations? So in like critical refugee studies, what's new about that is you know people have studied refugees or indigenous peoples, let's say, or various marginalized peoples. They've been studied in you know conventional fields in academia for a long time, but they're always studied as objects from which like information or data is extracted. But more current movements in academia. So when you add critical refugee studies, you shift the perspective. So the perspective is that. The refugee is not a thing for you to study and extract data from which you develop policy or um, new NGO models to distribute food or something like that. Not that, that that's all like important work and relevant, but looking at but but what's important for us is to shift the perspective to understand that a refugee is a thinking being. That's a positionality from which human beings produce culture, produce art, produce thought. And um, those contributions to the discussions of why the world it is the way it is and how we can imagine and create a different way of being together on this world, um, it's very important to listen to those voices and see and hear those stories. So that's the shift. And that's also, again, anti-colonial and decolonial thought and indigenous thought. These are all perspectives and contributions to these very important conversations about creating a livable world of coexistence and justice. These are voices that have always existed, but haven't always had very much space to participate in, you know, the worldwide conversation. How did your childhood and upbringing and the experiences that you went through growing up influence the career path that you took and influence the area of study that you went into. Yeah, so it's totally related to my field of work and why I'm drawn to this work and actually why I thought about how much I love this film that we're going to talk about today. Um, I've loved it since I first saw it and the reasons became stronger or transformed throughout time. So I was born in Sari. So our, our family, our mother is Mazandarani. This is something I think is really important. People often say, oh, I'm Persian, but Persian, you can think about it differently, like a linguistic group, um, ethnic groups things like that. Um, but there's so many different ethnic groups, tribes, linguistic groups um, in within the borders of what's called Iran and people who who speak certain languages or are parts of certain ethnicities or tribes 
the Iranian borders by sector cut up their territories and their peoples as well. So the modern nation state is a problem for many of us and our identities and our communities. But okay, so going back, so our mom's from Mazandaran, her father's family are rural people, and her mother's family are rural as well, but eventually relocated to a city. So you have the rural and the urban experience that I had as a kid as well. Um, we lived in Kermanshah, which is Kurdish territory. So it's near the Iraq border because that Iraq border cuts up Kurdish territory in that region. We were there during the Iran-Iraq war. So I was always aware of different peoples and different places and how borders create conflict. Um, and, and then as well, when we, we eventually escaped from Iran because as Baha'is, it was just my sister and I, Farhan wasn't born yet. And my, for my father, it was a big concern because we weren't allowed to go to university. So we'd be able to finish high school, but we wouldn't be allowed to go to university. And in such a patriarchal society um, as Iran is and was, um, he, he felt that there was going to be a lot of precarity and danger for us. So we actually escaped through the Baluch um, border between Iran and Pakistan. So again, as a child, here I am, I'm like, why are there, we're staying in a Baluch um, kind of secure home, like a, there's a secret room with no windows. That's where we stayed until we were ready to be smuggled. And then once we crossed the mountainous borders, we got into, uh, we were, again, we we're in Baluch homes, Baluch safe homes. And so... I was told that we crossed the border, people shot at us at the border, but here are Baluch people again. So um, these kinds of understanding that the dominant stories that we're told of who we are and how it relates to land and place and the actual lived experiences of people tell a very different story. So these things were always very important to me um, as, as I saw them. And there's a scholar in uh, critical refugee studies, um, Vin Nguyen, who coined a term called refugee which actually draws on other um, other terms like negritude, which was um, coined by uh, black scholars. But it talks about how refugeetude is is an ontological state or a way of being or a relational way of understanding the world or approaching the world that is connected to refugee lived experience. And I would say that I... I feel very connected to that term and that way of viewing the world. The way of viewing the world for me is very much connected through my personal experiences with these identities and borders and things like that. That's very cool. So, okay, why don't you kind of introduce us into what film we're doing today and why it's important? Well, I don't, I, I don't have the full filmic history, which I think you guys might. I think it was released in 1985. Um, is well, that wait, wrong? What's the, what's the title? Oh, yes. Yeah, so the title is Shahre Musha. City of Mice. I don't actually know the director. There's two directors. So Marzie Borumand and Muhammad Ali Talebi, which is actually pretty significant that there's one of the directors of the film is a woman in 1985 because prior to the release of this film, I don't know if there were many women directing, like after the revolution and prior to the release of this film. Afterwards, like a few years later, there were a lot more that were emerging throughout Iran. But um, that's pretty significant. I think Maizia was one of the original directors and writers on the show that this film was based off of, mm -hmm. which was School of Mice, right? Yeah. Madrasa Musha, yeah. And this, the film was written by Ahmad Beh Bahani, Beh Bahani, which. Uh, 
I couldn't. It's very hard to pull up information about these individuals. But we're doing City of Mice, and it's a 1985, essentially puppet film in the vein of Jim Henson's Muppets or almost Sesame Street-esque. Right? Would you describe it Sesame Street-esque? I guess. In in terms of the audience that it targets. Right. I don't know. We could go we could go into our reactions, but first I'd like to know just like from based on your studies and your background like how this resonates now and I guess were you were you in Iran like would you watch this as a child in Iran? So we used to watch Madrasa Musha and actually that's how I got my first backpack because Madrasa Musha had a song about like I'm going to school. I won't sing mm-hmm. it for you. Uh, and my uncle was buying backpacks for my cousins who were older who were going to school. And then he bought me a backpack as well. So, so that's one of my core memories. And then when this film came out, oh, my God, the whole country was just so excited, so enamored by it. So people saw it numerous times. So it was the first film I saw in the cinema. And it was wow. – I just – I remember people – I don't know how many times people had seen it by the time I went, but I remember people singing along to the songs and like <laughs> stomping their feet. That's cute. Well, since this is like a podcast and it is an audio medium, I'm going to have to request that you sing a few bars from the backpack song <laughs> just for the sake of this is this is the main medium that we're working on. Okay, I'll do it. You, you here, don't have to if you don't want. But you can edit it out if it's as bad as I think it will be. <laughs> Something like, Mira madrese, mira madrese, jibom poras, fandogo peste. Or some other nut, maybe not fandog, but <laughs> maybe gerdu. Yeah. Uh, should I do a plot summary before we dive into our reactions? Yeah, yeah. Do a quick plot summary. Shahr Musha, City of Mice, 1985. Considered by many to be the most famous puppet show for children of all ages, City of Mice tells the story of, you guessed it, a city of mice who have to pack their belongings and quickly evacuate their town once news has spread of a wild cat who has arrived and wants to eat them up. The story centers mostly around the students of a shared classroom. While beginning the journey, the adult mice soon realize there's two routes to the city that they plan on starting their new home. The mountainous range is shorter, but more hazardous. The forest route is safer, but much longer. Most of the adults decide to take the more hazardous route with plans of getting a quicker start at rebuilding their new settlement and entrust the lives of the children mice with the classroom teacher and chef to chaperone the kids through the safer, longer passage. While on their journey, the mice encounter obstacles, snakes, strange allies, and bizarre misfortunes, all while being tracked down by the infamous cat, referred to as the one who shall not be named, where they are eventually faced with a final climactic showdown against the cat who has been hot on their tails all along. There's no Rotten Tomato score as it doesn't have enough critical reviews. But I ask you, Maro, what did you think of Shahra Musha? I'm very biased, obviously, because it's so connected to <laughs> such joy in my childhood. But um, I I love it. I think it's brilliant. And I think it touches on, I mean, the core of it is themes that are so relevant um, in this day. Migration, mm-hmm. asylum, seeking asylum, building new, building new lives. Displacement. Uh, y- yes, absolutely. Displacement. Also, I think it's um, it's really important because it's a children's film to think about agency um, as it's attributed to or expressed by these, uh, I mean, they're mice children, not human children. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's really interesting to watch how their agency is depicted and how it evolves through the plot. Barn? I mean, I'm also biased because I grew up watching this, but we had like, I think we had a tape version 
that mom and dad or somebody recorded when it played on the Iranian channel on TV at some point. Yeah, we had a VHS. Yeah, and it was like degraded and like we watched it so many times and the more we watched it, the worse it got. As I was rewatching the film, I realized how much of that film is ingrained in my memory because it was it almost felt like my brain was saying all the lines with 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 each line of dialogue in the film and all the songs that would play especially would spark memories of living in Coburg, which is obviously a very different experience from what you had, Mara. But the nostalgia aside, I think it's actually a really good film watching it again now because it's it's targeted for children, but it's tackling all these very mature themes that most children's films don't. Like we were trying to find comps to this. We were talking about Jim Henson and like Sesame Street, the Muppets, but none of them tackle themes like this or or subject matter like this. I'm curious to know if the film in any way helped displace children cope with the horrors of war and emigration, because it, it kind of gives children a reference point in some ways. Uh, just a few little thoughts that I jotted down while I was watching the film. These are just completely random thoughts. I thought the locations in the film were really great. They were actually on location. They went to the sides of, they went into forests, they were by waterfalls, they were in fields. And it's especially hard when you're dealing with puppets like in this film, because you need to basically dig out trenches so that your performers can hide under, right? The pyrotechnics in the film were actually very impressive. There's scenes where there's fireworks going off and firecrackers and explosions, and there's a character running around in the midst of it, and then there's puppeteers hidden under the ground all around where the pyrotechnics are going on. The music in the film was really well done. I love that every character has their own shtick, and their shticks kind of inform their name, which makes me wonder, did, their, did they have a different name when they were born, and then the parents changed their names once they're like, oh, well, our kid wears glasses now, so we're going to call him glasses or whatever. <laughs> And then I love also that the parents are basically just exaggerated versions of those of the kids. Like the 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 character with the big ears who can hear really well, his dad has even bigger ears. <laughs> and then my other note was just about the the teacher. Just because everyone values the judgment and wisdom of the teacher so much, like, all the decisions are made as a community through discussion, through consultation, and everyone holds the teacher's opinion in such high esteem because he's the most educated. Um, an example is Dombarik's dad is basically an anti-vaxxer, if you think about it. Like, he's like, we're not leaving. This is fake news. And then every everyone's crying. All the kids are crying. And the teacher's like, what's wrong? And they're like, oh, Dombarik's dad won't, won't let them leave. So he's like, I'll go talk to him. And then he walks inside the house and everyone's like shivering outside. And then Dombarik's dad opens the door and he's like, Dombarik, go pack your things. We're leaving. Which just shows, I think, how... Uh, wise this teacher is how much everyone respects him he's so good with the children he knows when to be gentle with them he knows when to be stern with them all right Kave, what did you think well i had a very different way of coming into this because unlike the two of you i saw it for my first time last night mm -hmm. uh, yesterday and i watched it twice and i uh i will say i, I very much liked it but the very first time i watched it i was worried it was going to be a slog because I found the story really picks up momentum once they are faced with the crossroads of the two routes they have to take. And I felt like if this was a campfire tale folklore of people sitting around telling stories, 
The story would really begin once they have the adults have to make the decision of which route to take. I I, I really like, like you said, Farn, how different each type of the mouse. The, the, when I first saw the muscular mouse, who's like promising that he's like, he hears of the threat of the cat and he's like, I'm going to go beat him up. And he's got like a little undershirt. <laughs> yeah. And he's got like a hairy chest. I'm like, this is very cute because they each have their own different distinct style. But one thing I really thought really bothered me quite early on and sub- kind of sort of lasted throughout the entire thing is I didn't think their voices were very distinguishable from one another, especially when a lot of them t- spoke at the same time. Maybe you guys disagree. Maybe you have a better ear for this or you've seen it enough times. But it's like if I were to shut your eyes and play a line of dialogue without context of any character, do you think you'd instantly know whether that, that was Glassy or uh, Dombarik or Narinji? Like, I felt like a lot of it was just, like, sped up high-pitched voices that didn't have any individual characteristics. Their looks very much did, in my opinion. But I constantly was just, like, I found their voices. Something about it was grating to me. But I will say this. Snow White and Cinderella are really good analogies for something like this. Because when I want to watch an animated movie today, I don't necessarily be like, I want to watch Cinderella again. Right? I'd rather see something like Pixar. But what Cinderella had done for animation at its time was groundbreaking. That moment in Cinderella when she's first got the dress on and it's coming on with the sparkles was considered Walt Disney's favorite moment of animation in all of Disney. Mm. And it's like those things were pivotal for what they did for children's animation at the time. And I feel like this is very similar to me for this. At first, I got very worried. I'm like, oh, my God, am I not going to enjoy this? It seems very janky and like cobbled together with like a lot of love, but like just very like once I really understood that the teacher was the main character and how much the town respects him and the kids love him. I was like, oh, here, I, I really felt safe in the storytelling at that moment. And I think the story really picks up from there. And by the end, I'm very excited to the, about the story. So to your point, Kave, I struggled as a kid and even now to sometimes distinguish who was who. But I, I would often like ask Maral or ask my mom, wait, which character is that? Which character is this? And mm. I'm curious if... Maybe it's easier for people to distinguish if they had grown up watching the TV show. Yeah. Because it's not like like each character doesn't get an introduction in this movie. You're just thrown right in. Yes. And there's already a community here. Everyone already knows each other. Everyone already knows how to push each other's buttons or how to help each other out when they're feeling down, which which almost makes me want to spend more time with them because I'm like, oh, this is a group of friends. I want to get in with that group of friends. So Mara, when you were watching this did you kind of already get a sense of who each of the characters were honestly like it's a bit of a blur but i'm i'm sure that Coppola and dombarik were in the in the kids show mm-hmm. and naranji too and, and naranji okay and did she have a lisp in the show as well do you know it was the same actor actress the, fam- okay. the famous actress named um fatima simid motamed daria no the full sentence yeah. well, um, i'm glad you yeah. took that one <laughs> yeah so um, for, for me, it was I thought it was easy to tell everybody apart from voice and puppet. But actually, when I rewatched it, I also thought it was the teacher who was doing was like the whole um, town kind of um, circled around and took it, listened to his wisdom and stuff. But there's another character that has the same suit, but has light colored eyes. And it's actually him who's holding um, the map, I think. So then I got, I was confused. I was like, wait, this is another person. And it's, and he seems to play, like, I thought maybe I see the cat Khoda, like kind of like the chief or the yeah. mayor or something. So I'd have to look at that again. And he was hard to distinguish from the teacher, but there was all of a sudden two of them. So now I, I take that point. 
Yeah. I actually made the specific note of the first 20 minutes really felt like Game of Thrones mm. in the sense that I was introduced to like 12 to 15 characters <laughs> that all sounded, they looked different enough yeah, yeah. for me, but they all sounded alike. And it probably was that thing of like, oh, you recognize these characters from the show, so we don't need to introduce them all. But coming in completely cold, not having seen the show, and they're all mice too. Like, at least Muppets is like, one of them's a giant pig, one of them's a skinny frog. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. But they're all mice, so I'm like, and a lot of the early scenes, they're all panicking and running around each other too. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, who, what, who's the characters? <laughs> like, whose story is this? <laughs> what am I following? But then again, once you started to get into a rhythm of it, once the journey starts, like for instance, one of my notes was, I love the chef. And I love one specific thing I really liked was how every time he blows the horn, he has this like really exaggerated way of clearing his throat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Remember he's like, <laughs> Beep, 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 beep. Like every time. And I was just like, that's such a funny idiosyncratic piece to his character. Oh, all that he has all to the characters throat. have such little like idiosyncrasies. Even when, mm. when what's his name? The one with the big ears? Is it Gushpolan? Like, what's his name? Yeah. Big ears. Is it Gushpolan? I can't remember what his name is. There Gushteraz? is a character named is it Gushteraz? Long- Gushteraz. Yeah, yeah, Gushteraz. He's like, whenever he, he hears ear. things, yeah, anytime he hears things, he goes, ding, ding. Like it's like yeah. toning it. <laughs> I wrote some of the characters' names. There's Chubby, uh, which is uh, Topol. Topol. Sleepy, which was Sleepy's name in Farsi. Khoshkhab. Uh Smiley. I don't remember what Smiley. Lab Labhand or something or something like that. No, it was Khosh. Is it Khoshkhand or something? I don't remember that one. Dombarik, which is long tail. That's narrow. There's Dombarik and and no, no, uh, there's Dom- two. There's two. Dombarik is is thin tail. Thin tail and lo- Dom. Um, Dom Deraz. Dom Deraz. Long tail. Then there's Glassy, which was uh, Enaki, I think. Yeah. yeah. Glasses. Sissy, Sleepy, Long Ear, Teacher, Chef, Muscle Mouse, I wrote. That's Kopol's dad. Yeah. Oh, is it? Yeah. There's a big nose, too. Uh, like, Damal. I don't know what it was, but I never yeah. picked it up before as a kid. And I was like, oh, yeah. I didn't realize. I didn't. I didn't. The funny know thing he had is, a I name. looked at his nose, and his nose isn't even like bigger than the other mites. Maybe like a hair bigger, yeah, but it is. I guess when you're all mites, he has a bulbous nose. Yeah, and then yeah. there's of course, and I want the two of you to discuss this with introduction, Far, and you can introduce this character. I oh, want I you know both to going. spend a few minutes talking about, of course, our uh, side quest hero, <laughs> Mashiro Mish- <laughs> Mishune. Mashiro Mishune. <laughs> Far, well, who is that character? He's this, he's essentially this Ronin that they find in the woods. He's like, he's a Japanese mouse that they find in the woods who <laughs> he's a bit of like a wanderer. Um, and he fights off a snake that's about to attack Kopol. But that's who he is. And unfortunately, the depiction of this character is uh, very dated. It is uh, a little bit of like a Fu Manchu type caricature. And uh, it's pretty racist, but we can talk about it when we get to things that didn't age very well. Because it's uh, I don't I didn't you think there was something wrong with his karate style, which was called Mushi Mashi Mishi. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah, and his song too. We'll get to that when we get. But even his song, <laughs> yeah, even his like, song is like the choice of chords that they played for the song yeah. was problematic to say the least. And it and he'll like just constantly start like yelling gibberish which is i guess supposed to be japanese yeah yeah i have a question moral for you mm-hmm. that character from your recollection memory was he like a fan favorite did, did, did he stick out as because it's quite a departure from everyone else in that entire story so like do you remember what did 
kids like that character or do you what's your memories of it okay so my memories are weird so it's so it's not like we didn't know there was further east asians like growing up my cousins loved bruce lee i loved bruce lee i wanted to Mm -hmm. be bruce lee when i grew up so we knew of people further east and martial artists in film but honestly i didn't i just thought he was a weird forest mouse i didn't get that Mm storyline until many years later when we were in Canada and I was like, oh my God, he's even wearing like a gi, like a mm-hmm, martial mm-hmm. arts outfit in the woods. And and then I understood his eyes, like the way they depicted his... But as a kid, I just thought, oh, he's a forest mouse that they met from their town towards the city they're going to build. So I didn't even pick up on those tropes. Because also in the West... There's lots of those racist tropes depicted in mm-hmm. films all at the same time. But I had yeah. never seen that kind of trope depicted in Iranian film um, or TV shows or anything. Maybe they exist, but maybe they're not as um, as common. So I couldn't even be like, oh, yeah, that's like the fake Chinese guy in this thing or the fake Japanese guy. There was nothing for me to compare it to. Right. So I just thought it was an anomaly. As a kid. I, it never occurred to me that this guy was supposed to be East Asian. I, like Mara, thought he was a forest mouse. But I loved his character because I was like, whoa, this guy can do martial arts. And we were watching a lot of Jackie Chan films at the time. Yeah. Like, this is awesome. Like, we have a martial artist in our film. Yeah. And then once we, once I was a little older, when we were living in Leamington, when I was like, I don't know, 10 or 11, and I rewatched the film, then I was like, oh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. yeah, that's why I wondered he might I, – I had a, like, suspicion that he would be a bit of a fan favorite amongst kids back in the day because he really – they give him a lot to do. Like, he's in one of the most intense action scenes and comes in like a hero. And I, I could picture, like, a six-year-old boy from Iran, like, wanting to be that character. Well, Bruce know? Lee was, like, very popular. In yeah. yeah, of course. All yeah. of our cousins yeah. – Our parents, our aunts and uncles, like everybody was like obsessed with Bruce Lee. Yeah. I will say one other thing before we move on to behind the scenes and trivia, but I really love the use of, you know, like every character is a puppet except for the cat, which is played by a man in a costume. Yeah. And that's an interesting choice. First, there's a lot. Maybe you could like extrapolate some subtext from that, but also just every scene with the cat felt like a horror movie. Mm -hmm. It's genuinely scary. It's a genuinely scary mask and costume. And I really liked it. And I'm interested in why they they decide to go that route versus making another puppet of a larger cat. Maybe that was more economical for them. But I I personally really like it because it felt like little <laughs> interspersed scenes of horror amongst this like children's story. It's cool too because in some ways he's more humanistic, the cat. Yeah. Just assuming it's a male cat because it's obviously a giant person in a cat suit, right? Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. in other ways it's less humanistic cuz the the mice are speaking and they're wearing mm-hmm. clothing and they're they have towns, they have all these things, but the cat doesn't have any of that. Like the cat can't speak. Mm-hmm. The cat probably doesn't have a town. It doesn't have a personality beyond yeah. being this crazed monster. So I just thought that that was interesting how this one animal is has no it's is not anthropomorphized at all. Did I use that right, Marl? Yeah, you, yeah. You're the. <laughs> I I. I'm here for a word check. Uh, yeah, I, there's a running joke between Marl and I where I tell everybody that she's a linguistics professor, which I am not. Uh, her area of expertise is literature. It's more than literature. Have you two met? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
But I am not a linguistics professor. Not a linguistics professor. You know, I, I often, I love that about it, that what you said, the, that um, they, the mice are anthropomorphized, so they're more easy to connect to. But meanwhile, the cat is embodied, literally. It's the body of a human being. But for me as a child, and then thinking back even as an adult, the cat, it was horrific. It was horrific. And I remember in that society, there is a constant fear because the revolution happened in 79. There was a war mm. until, mm -hmm. what is it, 88? So in that society, there was always this undercurrent of fear. And even though I was a child, I knew there was things you didn't say, things you were afraid of, um, and they were associated usually with power, with the state, with the police, with other um, police-like bodies. Um, so there was always a fear and a fear you weren't allowed to articulate. For example, like, because we were Baha'is, there was constant um, policies to economically destroy our communities. And we're a multi-ethnic, multi-tribal um, religious community. People are Baha'is from all kinds of different ethnicities, races, tribes, in, even in Iran. Mm -hmm. So that kind of wraps, like if you're a Baha'i Kurd, then you have multiple forms of oppression that you're dealing with, with the state, you know, um, for example. So I remember my, again, they'd cut off so many forms of or, or modes of um, economic life for us so my aunt and mm -hmm. uncle they couldn't work for the government anymore all these kinds of things so they in their backyard they were building a structure and i believe they had the permit for it or whatever policy um, was in place had been met and they were building a small salon for my aunt and then um, the authorities came with mm -hmm. a backhoe to knock it down and um there's just this constant threat um and we weren't allowed to protest or um, we had to you know abide we have to honor the government we had to abide by the rule of law which was very hard to distinguish when it was constantly changing mm -hmm. but there was all even in class before our teacher would come in I, I was in an all-girl class we'd take off our hijabs and well, they weren't hijabs they're called um what are they called like magnaia or something they're just these cute little things with a face cut out and you pull it over your head and we'd take them off and we'd look at each other's hair. And then one girl would stand at the door. And the moment the teacher would come, she'd like give us the signal and we'd all put them back on and, and sit. And then when she'd come in, we'd stand. So there's this constant fear in that kind of society. Um, and so to me, it doesn't even, the cat's not a person. It's not a cat. It's representative of this movement. Yes. And and yeah, it's it's the antagonist. And and that's why it becomes even though when I came to Canada and then you're dealing with the kinds of racism and stuff here, the cat never leaves. <laughs> the cat's yeah. always looming in various different forms mm. and places. So it was. It was horrific. And when you think about the songs of the film, um, yeah, they're they're constantly talking about danger and courage and um and, me and many refugees or, um, you know, people fled from Iran during the 80s and 90s to come to Canada. So the way that they carry that story with them mm -hmm. as well. And thinking about the way that refugee stories are often written or the ones that get published, either written by non-refugees, for example. And again, these 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 cats, I just want to say, or these mice, I want to say, I don't think that they are refugees. It's like Kaveh said, they're telling the story of displacement and throughout history, all peoples have stories of migrations and displacements, you know, whether you're Polynesian and you have stories of seafaring 
or the Anishinaabe, for example, in the Great Lakes area, they have this ancient um, migration story of hundreds of years and how they, they have a story that they were first near the ocean, near the East Coast. And throughout prophecies, they moved inland to the Great Lakes area. Now, these aren't refugee stories, and they're not stories of colonization. They're different. Human migration is from the beginning of time, you know, and even in Iran, there are stories of there would be a whole town wiped out by a disease or something. And hundreds of years later, other people migrating from another region for whatever reason end up to an abandoned small town and, and live there. So there's it, it's an it's an eternal human story, but it resonates with so many different um experiences of displacement well because also like the the you know it could be displacement just due to for like there's cultures and traditions that were like due to weather right it's yes. like weather or like we need a better source of water or this place is burned down due to a lightning storm that 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 cat could be an antagonist but it could also when you said like we were both sort of mentioning the idea of it being a force a destructive force could be a hurricane it could be an earthquake and displacement could be you, I'm sure you've studied this more than I have, but it could just be like part of nomadic tribes and cultures that just are they're part of their culture is to leave, pack up and leave. Like the Japanese ronin. Yes, right. absolutely. And there's people who like do seasonal migrations or they're herders yeah. and, they're, and they they have like a pa- paths of migrations that they have for yeah. sure. Yeah. Behind the scenes and trivia. Uh, this is mostly me just seeing, like spitting out some stuff that I'd found on random lazy IMDb stuff or deeper research. I've got a few facts to throw at you guys, and you guys could respond whether you've heard it before or not. And then if you have your own, please jump in. But, of course, this was based on the School of Mice a TV series that ran from 1981 to 1984 and used a lot of the same cast of voice actors from the TV series. They were all very famous and popular uh, actors and voice actors. The original aim of the series was to encourage children to focus on academia and make them excited about going to school. And it was so popular, they began developing the movie. The film was made for 1.2 million toman. Okay, so at the time, that was worth about 150,000 US. Whoa. But due to inflation, it is now worth, we did the math with my cousin yesterday, it's about $34 Canadian. Oh my God. Oh my God. Because of how much the, uh, the economy <laughs> has been destroyed. So this entire film, I mean, obviously too with like, 30 year difference you know more than 30 year 40 year time difference but also with the inflation and the price of everything dropping there how much toman did you say 1.2 million toman is about 34 canadian dollars today oh my god and that was what they had spent on making the film then. despite the success of the film a sequel wasn't made for nearly 30 years in 2014 city of mice 2 came out by the same director marzia borumand it's the story about a mouse. They've now moved to the new city. They've been living there for about a generation. And one mouse finds a baby kitten. And chaos starts ensuing because there's a new cat in town and they're worried. But the, one of the mouse starts um, defending the baby kitten. And so because of this mouse's defense of this kitten in town, chaos is starting to ensue, which I think is actually Whoa. a very interesting evolution of the story. Right? That's super cool. It is cool. And I saw like snippets of it on YouTube. Their production value is through the roof compared to the first one. It looks genuinely like a Jim Henson production, this new one. It looks like you're watching a Muppet movie. We should do that one at some point. I didn't even know that that existed until like yesterday when I was looking when I was looking up the show. And then City mm-hmm. of Mice 2 came up and I was like, whoa, this is... I didn't even know this was a thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of the same 
different voice actors, but a lot of the same characters are back too. Are they like older and they're like the parents now? I don't think so because I didn't watch it, but I, I maybe. That would be really interesting. They, look, they still look like mice. Yeah. Unlike the TV series, most of the film was shot outdoors, which you mentioned, Farn, but also uh, it was shot mostly in the mountains of uh, Kaladash. Did I say that right? Hmm. Marl, you were born in Iran. You fact check us on that. <laughs> like, I don't know what Kaladash is. And I'm going to throw this to you, Farn, because your pronunciation is far superior than mine. Oh, the, God. The cast of voice actors were also, a lot of the voice actors were the puppeteers as well. Wow. Um, but here's the names of some of the the, the main um, players, because they were, like, composed of mostly well-known actors at the time. First of all, I'll say Iraj Tahmas and Iraj Bozdudeh. <laughs> It were like the main two main puppeteers, along with Hamid uh, Jebeli. They were um, puppeteers and animators who went on to make Kola Qaymezi, oh. which is oh, also no very way. popular. That was their next, yeah, that was their next project afterwards. Kola Qaymezi is also on our podcast list. And Iraj Tahmasp was the voice of of Kola uh, Qaymezi and and also Pesar Khale. Oh, oh, that's cool. So that was their main next project after this. But uh, yeah, some of the other actors were Masood. Karamatif, Fatima Motamed Daria, and Rahim Dusti. They were like pretty big actors of the time and have gone on to like great acclaim and legendary status due to their involvement of this, but many other projects. So that is your behind the scenes and trivia, unless you guys have other things to add. Well, I have some questions tomorrow that might prompt some more. So one of our friends, Ruzbe, who was on an earlier episode of the podcast, he was telling me that when... He was a kid. He, he was watching it in the theater in Iran. And whenever the whenever the cat would show up, he would hide under the seat in front of him because he was so scared. Did you remember any other kids doing things like that or like hiding in the theater? Um, what was your reaction like to the cat? Like, can you tell us a little bit about what the like cultural zeitgeist was around that at the time? So I don't. I don't remember anyone hiding, but I do remember, and Kava said as well, even as adults watching, it was truly horrific. And a lot of the time it's the anticipation, right? It's mm-hmm. the the music or you just see his feet or um, so, yeah, it was terrifying. But um, very different vibe. I mean, it was it was like an event. And I'm telling mm. you, it seemed like people had coordinated, like from what I could tell as a, I don't know how old I was, four or five year old, they were stomping and clapping and singing. Mm. And, and like my, uh, my aunt took us, my aunt took our mom and us, there was tons of adults and kids there. So it had a very, uh, it felt like a festival. It was huge. How many kids were you when you went? Oh my God. They, she took a huge, from I, again, I'm a child. I felt like it was like 50 of us, but maybe there was 15 of us or something. Of like a you lot and of the cousins. cousins and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh my god, Amazam, awesome. she 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 saw it and she said, "We have to go. It's it's amazing." And I know it seems like you said janky. Like you think it's a little bit silly the puppeteering of the puppets, but at that time, and what was made in Iran, um, I don't even I don't remember seeing newer American films at the time. We would get things from like Japan, or from Russia, or from uh, India. So mm. it, we didn't have like a point of reference. So to us, we were like having seen the handheld puppets, mm-hmm. um, the very simple ones on the TV show. And then now they had feet and they're in a forest. Yeah. Um, we were like, whoa, you know, the tech was amazing. <laughs> so. Well, I, I'm not going to lie. A lot of it does hold up. But maybe I'm 
maybe I'm looking at it through a cultural bias, but like even seeing the puppets running around as there's explosions and sparks and fire and stuff, like it was, it was really cool to see. Kave, I have one more BTS for you. Mm-hmm. Go for it. An audio clip of this film is briefly featured in an Iranian-Canadian film that came out in the last few years. Do you know which film? Toronto? That's right. <laughs> oh, there's yeah. A, yeah, there's a scene where Batty, it's a flashback of Batty in Iran as a kid, and he's watching TV, mm-hmm. and you can briefly hear uh, in the background a piece of the film where they're, like, hoisting the cart up the mountain. You can hear the teacher going, oh, right. one, yeah, yeah. two, yeah. three. Critical reactions, I'm going to mostly skip because it's nearly impossible. This is usually the section I try to find like uh, snippets of like critical reviews from actual critics at the time. Nearly impossible to find. I think I'd challenge anyone to find any online. But the fact is that this was a hugely successful hit at the time. It made a lot of money. Uh, Both uh, children, young and old, adults really loved it. Um, Groundbreaking hit for its time. And I think even surpassed surpassed the expectations of all the creators involved. They didn't expect it to hit the way it did. So that's all I really have to say about critical reactions, unless you guys know specifically what other critics at the time might have said about this thing. I don't know, but I'm very curious about like uh, international reception, like if it was picked up by any other countries or if there was interested and if it was um, dubbed over or... It was submitted to a few film festivals, but it never won anything. So I feel like it kind of didn't really register much on the radar on the international thing. It was okay. entered in a few festivals. I couldn't figure out which ones. One blog entry talked about the, the sentence was, although the film failed to win festival awards, it was established It was established in the history of Iranian children's cinema. So it's suggesting that it was submitted to film festivals and right. was uh, accepted, but just didn't win anything. It so wasn't. It, it wasn't exploited enough of our hardships to win any awards at international film festivals. <laughs> unfortunately, deeper analysis in our interpretation. I would love, Marl, you just take it away and just do what you do best with all the knowledge and background and understanding <laughs> and experience that you have. I don't know about all that, but I there's one. So there's one thing I wanted to to say that it reminds me of there's I don't know if you know I don't know how to pronounce her last name but Warsan Shire or Warsan Shire she's a Somali Kenyan born British poet mm-hmm. um, and she has this amazing poem called Home and the Shahra Musha often well when I read this poem I thought of Shahra Musha and just my experience as a refugee again we've said it's not a refugee film but one way of reading it yeah, uh, connects course. to that um, and the opening stanza of the poem is, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Oh, wow. It's interesting because in this one, um, home is the mouth of a cat. <laughs> so mm-hmm, yeah. so that's, it, it, it depicts the kind of level of um, horror or death that you're faced with yeah. to, dis- to, to take your whole life and move. And I actually had... As a child, I had a very different reading and myself now with Dombarik's father and what happens there than your reading, Farhan. Um, I'm insulted that you called him an anti-vaxxer because <gasps> I don't think that's what's happening. <laughs> well, maybe you're so, an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not an anti-vaxxer. So um, in our country, there's a very twisted relationship with where people's remains are. 
So the government mm-hmm. won't, won't let, for example, like communist bodies be buried near Muslims because mm-hmm, they'll mm-hmm. like dirty them or whatever. And as Baha'is as well, we're considered najest. So we have to have our own burial area. So najest like spiritually dirty. We can um, spiritually contaminate other people. So um, we had to, fine, whatever. We bury our dead somewhere else, okay? But then there's the constant... Um, uh, or sometimes they'd, if our dead were, um, uh, were what's the word, executed, we wouldn't know. And they do that with everybody's dead when they execute them. You often don't know where they're buried. So you have this weird relationship with land and ancestors and ans- where are they? Or they wouldn't let us put marked objects on our graves. So you, we wouldn't know, like when we'd go to the graveyard to my grandfather's grave, we, we kind of knew from counting, but we weren't certain. They wouldn't let us leave markers. So we would just pray for all the dead mm. there. Um, so there's this obsession. And actually, I went to hear an academic once talk about how this obsession is particularly Shia. Like Sunni Muslims don't have this obsession. And it has to do mm. with um, the Zoroastrian teachings about mm-hmm. how the earth is clean, fire is clean, and water is clean. But the human body is this obsession with cleanly, what is clean, what is not clean. And that's why Zoroastrians traditionally take their the bodies of their dead to a high place for it to be reintegrated through like the animal cycle. Mm-hmm. So his research was suggesting that this obsession with land and cleanliness in Shia Islam has roots in Zoroastrian um, cosmology. So I, I thought that was really interesting. But anyways, when I think about indigeneity and displacement and connection to land, where people bury their dead is very important. I, I suspect you don't know where I'm going with this. No, I, I, I totally do. Do, do. Farhan doesn't know. This is about va- vaccinations, right? <laughs> yeah. I, for me, I always thought, because there's, they're representing so many different perspectives of how people respond to whether it's a hurricane or it's a horrible regime or it's a colonizer, whatever it is. And for me, Dombarik's family was representing that ancestral or generational or like lineal line to land. Because where is his mother? Where is um, him and his brother's uh, mother? We don't know. They don't have a mother. A lot of the other ones, they have the pairs. So you can tell mm-hmm. like Coppola's dad is the strong man and like all those things. <laughs> I always understood that his wife was dead. That's the kind of narrative I'd created in my story or in my mind. And that mm-hmm. he didn't want to leave her body there in their soil. Wow, that's and I, beautiful. And yeah. then I always understood it as well. For my mother, the way my mother didn't want to leave Iran, it's because that's where our ancestors, we are literally the soil. Mm. So it's very hard for people to leave their their soil when you're intergenerationally connected mm-hmm. to, to land. So I always, I loved that depiction. Um mm-hmm. Because pe- many people were thinking about those very difficult decisions and many from many different angles and perspectives of it. So mm. that's how I often thought about Dombarik's father. Just one comment to what you said. I wonder if the reason that I didn't even pick up on that was because I was obviously born not in my home country. So I've never had that same kind of attachment to the land that I live in. Where for me, it's like if tomorrow something happens that we do need to be we need to move somewhere else. I, f- I have less attachment to this land, right? Because I'm not from here. I don't have an ancestral grounding here. So I have never defaulted to, oh, this is my home. This is where I'm from. But you actually lived that experience where you were born in the land of our ancestors and you were forced to, to move, to forced to relocate. 
Whereas my only reference point for something like this, like within my immediate life, was this anti-vaxxer thing. But now that you're bringing this up, I can obviously empathize because of your experiences, mom and dad's experiences, the experiences of people that I've met. And I think you're totally right. There's also like, I mean, Farhan, you don't have to live here or like live there. Haven't you just met an 80-year-old Iranian living in Canada? I know a few family members I have. I have this oh, for uncle sure. who's now passed away named Dai Farid. Dai Farid uh, was like essentially like my grandpa grandfather. Mm-hmm. Like, because I didn't, ha- I didn't have my gra- both my grandfathers passed away before I was born. And when he was like all of a sudden like 85, and he was so healthy his entire life. But like around 85, he kept saying to my parents that he wants to go back to Iran. This mm-hmm. is like about a decade ago now. And and he would go for like a few months and come back because his belongings life were still. And then he kept going back. And then like one day he just went back. I remember the last time I saw him, I took him to the airport. And I was like, I'll see you again in like six months or something. He's like, yeah, we'll see each other. Hugged him and everything. And then like he just like passed away shortly after. And it's like somewhere in his mind, he knew the end was coming. He, he wasn't sick. He didn't have anything. He was just like 85, 88 years mm. old, like almost maybe 90. And he kept going back to Iran because I think something about him knew that the end was drawing near. And he knew that if he was going to die, he wanted to die in Iran, despite having lived here for the last 50 years mm. or 40 years. So like and I've seen that countless times, like sometimes people when they're sick or, or like young but people who grew up there, when they kind of feel like the end is drawing near. I've seen a lot of family members who want to go back to Iran multiple mm. times because that's where they want to die. Yeah. Yeah. But I understood I've, that I've in other people too. just by witnessing that. That's an excellent point, Moral. Yeah. But but I, I take your point, Kava, about like um your great uncle. And there's something about like we care for our we care for our ancestors and our you know, many people do. We would go, we'd take golab, we'd put it on the grave, you know, you say prayers there, mm-hmm. like you it carries on. And when for Faran, I take his point in that like we didn't have many we eventually did have some elders around but like when you you're missing those generational that generational intergenerational fabric there's mm-hmm. so many parts of life that you don't even think of like sometimes i think about when our elders died back home we didn't know how to grieve here it, you know back home like certain machinery starts like these people prepare this yeah. food these people do this this person's going to wash the body da 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 but we don't have the machinery uh, I don't know, maybe it's not nice to call it the machinery, but like kind of the the roles and the responsibilities. So you develop a kind of disconnect. Because I remember mm-hmm. when like one of our elders died here and we went to um, to his funeral and his burial, I was crying so much. And it was kind of a bit ridiculous how much I was crying because he wasn't my grandfather and he wasn't like a surrogate grandfather to me like yours was. Uh, obviously, I loved and respected him, but I, from what I felt, I felt like our parents always told us the, this, the myth of we're going to return. The home country is going to become safe. The Shahra Musha mm. will be built on the town of Musha or whatever, and we'll like return. And so once we started to bury elders here, for me, it was like a switch. And I thought, oh, Oh, we're like <laughs> we're not gonna be like um, yeah. Dai fighter, Amu fighter, Baba fighter, whatever what you said his name was. Um, we're gonna start being buried here, and that's a very different yeah. kind of relationship to place, right? Yeah. Well, I'm sad now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. Do you, Marl? You were gonna say something else too. Well, I was gonna say about um when. Kava said, like, and I would do the same thing. I'd conflate Shahra Musha about, like, the title is where they live. But it's not. At this time watching, I was like, oh, it's not actually. They don't live in Shahra Musha. The title of the film is aspirational. 
It's where they're going. Because yeah. they live in a basically a small town, and many mice from other places are all going together to build Same this one. city. Mm-hmm. And so thinking about it in terms of the way a lot of um, novels right now or films that you think of that would fit into the genre of like, you know, refugee literature, often not written by refugees, um, is very much there's a little bit of the story of how mm-hmm. where you come from is total crap and trash. <laughs> then there's the escape part, which is yeah. brutal and grueling and exploitative and whatever. And then there's the arrival and how you try to that part's more arrival assimilation or trying to assimilate or settling the bulk of the stories are often um focused on that uh that part of the story whereas yeah. when you look at Shahram Musha the the it's it's not there's bare, there's no like you arrive at the city of mice the aspiration at the very end yeah. at the very end of the song um but the it was largely establishing your town and then the journey of the children. Mm, so yeah. like a very, very different kind of um, structure, plot structure to what a lot of the literature that's getting published um, in the West is. I was just going to say, I teed this up earlier in the podcast, just about wondering if the film in any way helped other displaced children cope with the horrors of war and emigration, like Iranian children. Mm-hmm. Maral, I wonder if you can speak on that a little bit. Do you think, because so, a lot of times when children watch movies, especially if it's a big event film like this one, that can kind of become their whole reality for a, a good chunk of time where that's all they talk about. It's all they think about. They just keep going to watch the movie over and over and over again. And then suddenly a lot of these kids have to deal with the horrors of war or displacement or emigration. Um, can you talk a little bit about how a movie like this might influence a child going through that? I think it's important for children coming from various contexts to have access to different kinds of stories because it, when you constantly see films or hear stories that don't reflect your reality or your experience at all, um, it's very alienating and I think it's very unhealthy because you start thinking, you know, is something wrong with you? Um, is something wrong with people around you? Um, and so for myself, having access to the, like my favorite films, I think you guys did this one too, um, Gavaz and Ha, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was like my favorite film as a kid. Uh, and I think that, um, yeah, the stories that children hear, we they need access to more than just the prototypical, the princess and the whatever, or even like they've expanded now. I haven't seen Frozen. I'm sorry, Kaveh, that you have to be subjected to the soundtrack. But that the, the love around which the story, you know, develops isn't, this is what I've been told. I haven't seen it. But instead of the love between the princess and the prince, but between two sisters, it's like, yeah, wow, yeah. really pushed it so far. Sorry, not to be denigrating. <laughs> yeah. But if you've seen Studio Reble films, like, um, or Ghibli or Ghibli or however people pronounce it, I recently learned that he actually took the the word Rebbe from Arabic, so it is. Oh. Yeah, so it is studio. Rebbe. I was just thinking. I was like, did you just like Western Asianify the? <laughs> no. So apparently he pronounces it Jiburi himself because they don't have L's. But so, anyways, that going into my linguistics background, which I don't have. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so um, for me, it was really important, these films, for my identity, because I had experienced things that when I came to little towns like Coburg, Ontario, or Belleville, Ontario, people around me, predominantly white kids, um, hadn't had those experiences or that life. Not to say that people here don't have, there's tons of racism. This is a settler colonial place, like what Indigenous people have gone through and continue to go through. But I think those kids have always had also a need for different kinds of stories and different kinds of suffering and courage and seeing kids in different ways with different challenges and different opportunities to respond and arise to those challenges. So I think that's one reason why I clung to that film myself and I can imagine others as well. And for that reason, actually, I show my kids, I have two kids, 12 and nine, since they were very little, they've watched the Studio Ghibli films um, and they they are, they can be quite horrifying as well if you're not you know used to used to those kinds of things and they have very different kinds of storylines, very different kind of story arcs and plot development than dominant Western films and they love them and I think um, you guys are storytellers yourselves. Um, it's really important to know that you can break away from kind of the standard or the convention in the West. One thing that made me think of, I was going to mention this later on, but it's probably more appropriate here. I constantly was thinking back to Art Spiegelman's Mouse, which is a graphic novel that talks mm. about Polish Holocaust survivors and his attempts of like, he wanted to use the graphic novel to tell a postmodern um, retelling of the horrors of the Holocaust, but to a new generation, a younger generation to make it more, He's not making it more acceptable. You know, what's the word I'm thinking of? But it's like he's bringing it to an accessible to a new audience, a younger audience. And he won the Pulitzer for it was like the first graphic novel to ever win a Pulitzer Prize. And specifically, again, using mice as like the um, anthropomorphization of survivors who are having to flee some sort of trauma. So it's just interesting. You know, they've never adapted that um, graphic novel into a film, but that totally could have been a corollary film for a double feature had they ever done that, but I don't think there's any plans. Should we? I, yeah. In terms of like deeper analysis, I don't have anything else to add that either I or, or either of you had mentioned already. Just the ideas, the parables of displaced Iranians throughout history is like on the nose. And I kept thinking about the children of Gaza when I was watching this film. Mm. Cause you can just like insert your own like personal, like, which is like it's current events tragically, but also like it's been ongoing for the last 50, 60 years. You could almost take any plight of Middle Eastern, West Asian uh, trauma and and civil war or foreign mm-hmm. invasion and just put this into this film. Like, put yours of choice. Put yeah. your trauma of choice into these parables Well, even fit. Even, like, the Uyghurs and the Tibetans mm-hmm. uh, yeah. all throughout Africa, throughout Latin America. Like, it's... I think that a lot of the themes in this film kind of transcend those borders netflix and blockbuster like netflix is the cat and the block blockbuster is the mouse <laughs> yes. i follow um can i say can i say one more one more theme oh yeah thing? for Sorry. sure please so yeah. something that i've learned from studying you know children's literature or film is the importance of children being protagonists in film mm-hmm. and the commentary on that but um i think it's really interesting to see how these um these childlike figures are depicted in the film from the in the beginning they kind of their agency is in creating joy for themselves when they go, when they ask to be let 
go out of class to go to the bathroom, but it's really because Coppola found a walnut stash and he want and they all want to go there. Mm-hmm. So they use their agency to create joy. That's what children do. And there's a parallel with the children in Gaza too when you see them like breakdancing or you see them having to create moments of joy throughout the suffering and misery. There's no misery at that point in the novel, but you see, okay, these are the tools that kids have, that children Mm. have. They're not involved in the decision-making that they're going to be separated from the elders and they're going to go through the valley. Like there, there's no agency there, right? Mm-hmm. And then even like throughout when there's the the moment of danger, when the snake attacks Kopol, Kopol doesn't protect himself. He's just eating. And then uh, he he's saved by this outsider, this, you know, new friend that they've met on the path. So again, you know, no agency. But then when they finally confront the cat... Mm-hmm. It's the children's kind of mischievousness, that child quality mm-hmm. and their agency and their, you know, their strengths and their courage that saves the day. They dig the holes. Coppola is the one being the decoy. He's injured and he's being the decoy for the cat. They're setting off the the, the um, fireworks. So it's there's also like an, an empowerment and a recognition of children's capacities and courage in this film, which thinking of. I mean, it's, there's different lineages of the way that people's understandings of childhood or children has developed. But I know like studying Western literature, for example, like children are not thought of as human beings with agency and worthy of respect and, you know, having thinking yeah. capacities until like in very recent history. And even yeah. still, sometimes you don't see that depicted in film. So I, that was very refreshing to see um, in the film. And now mm-hmm. I'm done. But any thoughts, Warren, or best, best scenes? Well, actually, what Marl just said is a good tee up because my favorite scene is actually the scene where Coppola is luring the cat. I love that scene so much. And it's not not even because it's for any deep reason other than I love Coppola. He's my favorite character. And he's through him ridiculing the cat. It immediately takes the cat from the being this horror film-esque force to being this thing that we can all triumph over. Like it's the cat is no longer scary in that scene to me. Cause it's like, ha, like you suck. You're the worst. Blah, 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 blah. And he's like running around and it's, it's so cathartic to watch this cat be run off by the mice. And even as whenever he pops up, he he does a little like dance like a nana nana boo boo or like the Persian version of yeah. the dee 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 and he's like shaking yeah. it he's like shaking his belly and I love I don't know if you guys noticed but the the puppet for Kopol the way it's designed is slightly different where its head and its body are like two separate pieces so that it can shimmy its body around yeah. it's so funny I felt like Kopol's body was changing throughout the film too like his shirt wasn't fitting. Uh, quite as right throughout the film. <laughs> was that just me, or did you not notice the button seemed to be a little bit loose, like tighter? I didn't, on, like, I didn't pick it... up on that, but if that's intentional, that's really funny. Marl, your favorite scene? I'm a very, uh, I'm a very sorrowful. Per- I love the scene where um, when the kids don't break and when all those kids are so sad and they rally around their two friends because they think that they're not coming, and then the teacher goes and gets and yeah. we don't we don't know what's said. So it's very much That's, we see yeah. it from the child's mm-hmm. perspective. Or like one of the children yeah. is like nosily goes up to the door and gets hit in the face with the door. But I find I just find it very um emotionally um 
compelling that scene yeah very interesting that like that choice to not show that conversation at all is very interesting like you're very firmly in the child's pov for that scene <laughs> Kava, what's your favorite scene um i really like the first song they sing because i actually like the song when they talk about the first song it's like we are going to the city of mice that's the one that it's kind of comes like 30 minutes into the movie <laughs> I kind of like realized at that moment because i didn't know it was gonna be a musical i should add that i didn't know it was a musical <laughs> until like 35 minutes into the movie when they sing the first song and i was like cool this song is actually pretty good and I, despite how problematic mushimuru mushi is whatever the, the the first appearance of of this mysterious figure that's fighting the snake the way it was shot because the snake is about to eat topol and then he's saved by a mysterious figure and you see like these like like karate chops and yeah. kicks coming to the snake i was like oh this is like really differently shot and then of course that character is crazily problematic but yeah. i really like those scenes those are like my favorite scenes throughout because you're right they're very felt... anime those like the yeah that. yeah totally yeah, yeah. least favorite scene shall we go on words yeah we yes, can least favorite. what's what's uh, yours kava you go first yeah, I was gonna I was gonna jump in because I feel like you guys probably don't have one off the top. I don't have one particular scene, but I felt like the first ten minutes after the teacher scene, I really like the teacher scene. I thought the film came to a bit of a halt, even though you like that town crier song. It was that thing of like I was starting to get worried that I didn't know who the characters were. Is that Game of Thrones feeling? Mm. And it wasn't until right now we started discussing the importance of that scene of talking to the father. About coming, about going on the on this exodus, that I did, I was just like it's so it started feeling slow and I got worried because I, the voice acting to start off was grating for me. I love the puppets, but I was just like, oh my god, are we gonna be stuck on this? Everyone's talking over each other and hurried like for like ninety minutes of this. <laughs> and once they hit the forest and the woods and the journey, I I felt like the story started. So for me, the my least favorite scene is sort of the first 10, 15 minutes. It was a bit of a slog. But yeah, that was that was it. It just started off slow and confusing for me. I also wonder if because again the tech was so new at the time, if people would it wouldn't have been as slow for people because they're like, Whoa, the that's puppets have true. feet. Like that's doing the heavy exactly. lifting. Right. Yeah, yeah. For the, sure. uh, yeah. Also, I feel like the way in which they pitch shifted the voices, that's that's likely more grading to you now, Kavit, because this is like tech that they used in the 80s where they would just play back the tape quicker to pitch shift it. So you would yeah. have to get your performances to perform slower so that when it's delivered, it's it's not super fast, but obviously it's still a little fast and it's high pitched. So I wonder if that is contributing to it. Yeah, it was something. They kind of just felt indistinguishable to one another. They just all kind of were doing the same effect. Mm. You guys know least favorite scene? I, I have a like kind of confusing scene. Mm -hmm. There's the scene where they, I can't remember when it is, but they're, they've kind of set up camp and then they leave. And it's the first time that we see that the cat is on their, is on their uh, tail, on their trail, however you say yeah, that. Yeah. And they have like a million blankets and pillows. I, I know kids leave stuff, but it was very confusing both as a kid and then when I rewatched it um, 
today uh to i'm like are they just out in the woods are they going to come back it just was very confusing because there was so much stuff laid out there's another part where there's like the doll in the forest or there's a blanket somewhere that makes more sense to me as a trail yeah but that scene was very confusing i I was like did i forget a part are they gonna is he gonna have a first attack i wasn't sure for me and i'm just thinking back to when i was a kid my least favorite scene has has always been the the opening credits like where it's just like you're just seeing the mice jumping around in the walnuts for like right two minutes I just remember as a kid being like, ah, like, this is so boring. We're just watching these mice jumping around in, in the walnuts for two minutes. You don't like joy? I love joy, but... They're being joyful. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe if there was more happening in that scene while the credits were playing. I also understand that this is from from like an older time in films. Like a lot of earlier Walt Disney films will have a similar thing where you'll get the opening credits with an overture and it's just like paintings of what's going to happen in the movie. And as a child, I was also very bored by those scenes. I was like, can we just watch the movie? Like what is going on? And to Kava's point that the movie takes a while to start, I think it, it would have been less noticeable if that opening credit sequence wasn't there. Damn, that's poetry where we discuss some of our favorite quotes about the film. Marl, why don't you take it away, Marl? Okay, mine's not very deep. I mean, there's I the songs, all of the songs were so powerful and beautiful, mm-hmm. especially the last one about courage. But for me, as a kid and watching it again, um, is when Kopol takes the big tumble and we think he might have died. And mm-hmm. the, and they go down and Ashbazba, she says, Kopol. Kopol. And Kobol turns and he says, And I just, I cried so much as a kid in the theater. And even uh, now it's very emotional for me. And it's hard, to, and for me, that's very poetic because it's hard to translate. Yeah. Because sure, Kobol John means like Kobol deer. But mm-hmm. it's not dear. John means life. And you describe people as like your life or, you mm-hmm. know. And so then when he says, then he, then that little turn of phrase, John a Copo, like it's another term of endearment, but very profound. And to hear like a yeah. little, a, a character that's supposed to be a child say that in this really pivotable, pivotal, you know, uh, gut-wrenching moment, uh, it, I yeah. think it's very powerful. I, I had that as my runner up for, for favorite quote, funny enough. Oh, who took the crown? It's when the kids are in the shelter and they're all wet and cold and crying and scared. I think it, who who has the, the dream, the bad dream of the cat? Is it Naranji? I think it's Naranji, yeah. And then uh, the teacher calms her down and calms down the kids. And then Ashwaz Bashi, the, the cook, he goes, think of your newly built school, of your warm and comfortable homes, of the colorful shops, of the beautiful, pristine streets. Think of these things. When we reach the city, we'll have a big feast. Now sleep and think not of ill things. Sleep well and sleep comfortably. (laughs) 
کوچه های تمیز و قشنگ به اینا فکر کنید وقتی رسیدیم به شهرمون یه جشن بزرگ میگیریم حالا بخوابینو به چیزای بدم فکر نکنید خوش بخوابی راحت بخوابی that that actually hit really hard and i i uh was on the verge of tearing up but i i maintained my manly composure <laughs> i had uh the, i that coupled with what the teacher says right beforehand we goes listen to your children remember that we are going to a place where there is no trace of you know who in the big and beautiful city that your parents are building there's everything for you and you have to think of good things at bedtime to which chef adds teacher is right and then he says the quote the chef says the quote that you just said بچه‌موشای عزیزم گوش کنید یادتون باشه که ما داریم میریم به جایی که اصلی از استش و نبر نیست تو شهر بزرگ و قشنگی که الان پدر و مادر هاتون دارن میسازن همه چیز برای شما هست ببینید گوش کنید جانم شما باید موقع خواب به چیزهای خوب فکر کنید آقا معلم راست میگه راست میگه بچه ها so we had the same. Mm. I just had mine expanded on. Mm-hmm. It, it makes me also think of Kaveh when you drew the analogy with what the people and the children in Gaza are going through. And to think of while they're in the midst of this horror and this destruction, what is it that their parents tell them to help them go to sleep? And mm-hmm. you, you hear in some of the footage where they talk about you know, rebuilding, and some of them have rebuilt their homes numerous times because of previous yeah. um, sieges. And so, uh, yeah, it's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Favorite performance, where we discuss our favorite uh, actor, actress, and performance. This one's obviously a little bit tricky because it's a mix of puppeteers and voice acting. But I will just go with saying the favorite char- my favorite character, which could probably be a blend of the performances, is the teacher. Um, I really liked him. It reminded me of Bahram Bezai's film Downpour with the teacher named Hekmati. Mm. In that story is a very loving and caring teacher. So I just really like the way once I kind of started realizing that the story is a it's not really he's not it's an ensemble story, but he's sort of the figurehead. And like you said, the sort of person who is looked at as like a, a leader, like, you know, a leader, like a town sort of cultural leader. I really liked him. He kept his composure throughout all of it and was like a ju- kind, gentle, sweet teacher. Mm-hmm. So that's my favorite character. Marl, what was your favorite performance? Kovala is always my favorite. He's the funniest. He's the cutest. He's the the figure around which a lot of the drama or, you know, whatever happens. So he's my favorite. And now that you described, what, like, the way that the actual, me- like, mechanism of the puppetry works, mm. I was like, oh, that's why he's so much more expressive. He actually has more, like, mobility and range. Yeah. Um, so it's, like, the lowest hanging fruit. I know Kobola was everyone's favorite when I was a kid back home. Yeah. Hamid Jebeli is also my favorite performer of the film. Um for exactly the same reasons and he does a good job when he's when Kopol is like sad and dying when he's happy when he's hungry and even when he he'll Kopol will sometimes hit a point of excitement where he's so excited that he can't hold it in and he gets really bubbly that I think is is what really wins it over for me because he's so expressive and the voice actor I think does an incredible job at it at mm-hmm. uh showing these different sides of this one character where most of the other characters are pre- pretty uh, two-dimensional, at least in, in emotionally. 
I wish your listeners could see your face when you talk about Coppola. Like, you're radiating with joy and elation when you talk. You really <laughs> love him. It's obvious. I, I also want to give a shout out to the, whoever plays the cat. Because that cat absolutely scared the crap out of so many kids watching this movie growing up. So, clearly, the person doing either the person in the suit or the person making the noises for the cat did a really good job. Nitpicks and hot takes and what aged poorly. Uh, I think that section is self-explanatory. I'll just quickly do this. Again, going back to the Muppets, Jim Henson made a really strong point of each Muppet sounding distinct. He said that like half of the life that you're breathing in this character is not just the physical movement. It's the voice. Kermit is you close your eyes and you hear Kermit the Frog, you will know it's Kermit the Frog. Unquestionable. Um, Fozzie Bear, Gonzo, Miss Piggy, Big Bird, uh, Oscar the Grouch, Cookie Monster. They all are so distinct in their voices. That was something that these guys are considered actors and voice actors too. But I I wish there was some little bit more distinction in diversity in voices other than this one's a girl mouse. So her voice will be a little bit higher. And this one is like. Topo like a couple is like uh, kind of like I guess he's got a bit of this. I just wish there was more of that. Marl, what do you? How do you feel? Well, I, now that he explained kind of the philosophy behind, because before I'm like, no, there's distinctions between the voices. Like you said, there's different kind of um, ticks, like well, the one that says the dune dune, or there's for mm-hmm. me I can distinguish them by voice. But when you said how kind of like a philosophy, you'd explain it as a philosophy of puppetry, like how yeah. the voices have to be so distinct. Now mm-hmm. I can see it as that. Like if they were just children actors and those were their voices, they're distinct enough. But if it has to be so distinct and be all of itself in voice and in physical representation and all of that, I could see yeah that the distinctions aren't quite as sophisticated and as different um, as as Henson's and so don't follow that kind of philosophy. So I, I get, I understand your point now. It doesn't have to be, but it's just, it was just something like so much of, of who these people are, are just, I, yeah, it's just like probably maybe a preference mm. thing too, but you get my different, what I'm saying is like, you close your eyes and you hear Kermit the Frog, you're not going to mistake oh, yeah. him for any other. Bump. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Like, I will no say though, him. I do think that the character quirks in this, are better established than they are in in the Muppets across the roster of Muppets characters. Because if you think about it, a lot of those same characters that you just said, the thing that puts them apart is their voice and their distinct look, but they don't Mm. have like these weird little character quirks that all of these mice have. Like all of them have some defining thing that they do or like little little ticks that they have that, that makes them distinct so maybe maybe the the perfect muppet show or the perfect puppet show is where you get a bit of both where you have the distinct voices and you still have distinct character ticks you're just delaying the inevitable you have to have nitpicks and hot takes and what aged poorly well obviously the the super racist japanese mouse <laughs> is the, the most the poor super racist <laughs> japanese mouse yeah mashiro mishune was it yeah. mushiro mishune Moshiro Mishuna, yeah. Also his, oh, like his weird, oh, I don't know. I've never heard a Japanese speaker speak Farsi, like, but like that we're supposed to get the Japanese accent through his kind of Yoda grammar, where he like mixes up the grammar or he says, Shekam Khali instead of Gorosne and stuff like that. Yeah. And then, oh, and then Ashraz Bashi does the joke because he uses the 
bizarre grammar structure and says, you know, it's so good that he's learned a few words in a foreign language as well so he can communicate. Yeah. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. There's another thing too, though. I think maybe you disagree with me, but um, even as a kid, it didn't sit right with me, but the Narangi, like how much they torment her. Um, she, has a, she has a lisp. They, mm-hmm. they make fun of her lisp and... Um, and it's also uh, it's also very um, it's very male dominated. The there's like some female figures, but like when they're having the elders talk, it's all the male mice of the city. Mm-hmm. And um, there's I don't know if there's more female students. There's the two little girls who love each other, like mm-hmm. Mushmushak and whatever the other one's name is. Mm-hmm. And then there's Narangi. There's only three that I remember. And um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, and yeah. the and the one main girl, she's her whole shtick is that she's very annoying and a crybaby. Yeah. Mm. Who who sings the song? That's Dom. Somebody's little sister. It's called Sissy, I think. Right? Isn't it? Her name's Mushmushak. She's the Mush she's Mush somebody's Mushak, little yeah. sister. Yeah. They come with their parents. Their parents drop them off. Mm-hmm. Um, Mushmushak would I guess be like. Mousy mouse is a better translation. Uh, that's a nitpick for me. I th- I think the subtitles on this were not good. I think they were very ESL. Like and one part part it was supposed to say stronger and it said stranger and so I don't know how they yeah. generated the yeah. I've gotten used to this at this point. There's so many <laughs> so much janky subtitles I've read in the in the past. I have a few more. Oh yeah, they just abandoned the kids, and then go on a different route. Like the parents, the parents are like. We should go through the mountains because it's quicker. And they're like, yeah, but the kids can't go through the mountains. They're like, uh, send the kids with the teacher through the woods. We'll uh, we'll take the mountain. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. I feel like realistically that wouldn't happen. I feel like realistically maybe you would split up like one parent goes one stays or the parents stay. But like the single people would go up the mountain like you like think about it the two people that stayed are the two people that don't have kids and then all the parents left on their own i just right, don't yeah that's funny i just don't see that happening like even our parents escaped through the mountains carrying my two sisters <laughs> like it's not like they're like you guys go this way and we're gonna take a chartered flight or whatever no that's an interesting um plot device or like an approach to this story of displacement because often i mean there are when you now think about um, migrants coming in from you know uh, central and south america and into the Mm -hmm. and and through mexico so a lot of people from central america who go through mexico and into the u.s a lot of these they're children and they're who get taken by border patrol and imprisoned for Mm -hmm. like and put in detention so they are children but more often um and around the world, it's often families go together. But this is a story, again, we're talking about understanding children and child development and them as kind of different point and state of human development. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do you how do you create an opportunity for agency mm-hmm. for children um, in that kind of story, right? But yeah, is it believable? I agree. It's weird. I think you can still totally split them up. You just find a better reason for it. Like you go... We're we're gonna go through the mountain because uh, cats are better climbers or whatever, right? Like you find a reason to be like, we'll go that way because we have reason to believe that it's the more likely route that the cat is gonna go through, and it'll take longer. We'll send the kids through the 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 forest, which is the more direct route, and it's quicker, and the cat is less likely to go that way or whatever. And then 
through some other mechanism in the script, you establish, oh, the cat actually went after the children instead. Like it found the doll and it's on the scent of the children. Double feature lineup. Okay, I'll be brief. I would I would uh, pair it with a film you've already discussed, um, Khane Duskojas, where is the friend's home? Kiarostomi made that film, and his background was in, um, was it like the Institute, I have Institute for Intellectual Development of Children and Young Adults? Kanun. Is that what it was called in, in Farsi? Uh, I think so, pretty sure it was. His background, Kiarostomi's background in children and education and children's development. Mm-hmm. So you really see that in the film, in Khane Duskojas. Like you see, for example, how... Um, the boy's grandfather deals with him. He's running around. He like he has something truly urgent and truly noble to deal with, but the grandfather like makes him come over and sends him on like this task. And then he's talking to his friends out. Yeah, you know you got to beat kids every once in a while just to keep them in line. And you know and you got to kind of just tell them what to do so they know who's boss. Like that kind of. It's a critique of society's approach and understanding to children. Mm-hmm. Or his mother just gets mad at him and thinks that he's just trying to avoid his tasks. But really, yeah. he has this very beautiful and noble um, quest that he's on, right? So yeah. to for me, it's a nice pairing because, again, you have, the, you have as well the classroom scene or the relationship with the teacher. It's different. But to kind of trace and see the commentary on the way that children are viewed or the kinds of spaces that are open up for them through mm. film but also in society i think that's a nice pairing that's good yeah that's a very good one far uh mine is another exodus story that tackles heavy themes and is meant for a mm-hmm. child audience it's actually prince of egypt um and i was just as traumatized watching Prince of Egypt as a child as I was watching this as a child. Uh, but I think that it's good because I think that it it gives children access to heavy themes and pretty intense stories that children should know about or themes that they should know about and conversate. And it it offers opportunities for conversations for children to have with their parents. Both of those, so Shahra Musha or City of Mice with uh, with Prince of Egypt, I think would be my double feature lineup. I have three, and I would let the curator decide which one they'd want to go with. Um, the first one I thought of this morning that I wanted to include was Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, because it's it's stop motion puppetry, which is already cool. It's a story. It's it's dark in tone, and it's also like a story about like getting lost and trying to find your way. So it'd be cool to see those two juxtaposed among between one another. The other two I would say is a little bit more on the nose, but they're neither of them are puppet films. Is the animated movie Secret of the Nim? You know, Secret of the Nim by Don Bluth. It's the it's a, it's like it's not Disney, but it's the other major studio in the '80s that made a bunch of um, animated stories, and it's about a bunch of mice. The story is to save her ill son, a field mouse must seek the aid of a colony of rats with whom she has a deeper link than she suspected. That's the IMDb thing. I haven't seen the movie in a very long time, but it's uh, very dark, and it's a very good story. It's very worth watching. Oh, I know which one you're you remember Secret of Nim? I never watched it. Oh, it's worth saying. It's good. It, the, also, An American Tale, which is also Don Bluth, which is while emigrating to the United States, a young Russian mouse gets separated from his family and must relocate them while trying to survive in a new country, which is very, like, that's the main one you'd go. Again, mm. it's about mice. Uh, in American Tale, you probably recognize if you Google American no, Tale. No, I know right that now, one. I know that one. I, so the the funny thing is, I didn't see either one because as a kid, I was like, "These aren't Disney," so I didn't watch them. 
Oh, also, yeah, no, American good. Tail has a super racist um, in the desert sequence, which oh, perfect. It'll go I, with I think Moshiro Mishune. Yeah, it's either it's either that one or it's sequel. I forgot about it until I rewatched it, and it's like it's I don't like, remember. I haven't seen it like since I was Native a kid. American mice. It's so bad. Oh it's no, really bad. I can't remember um, well if it's then, the first one. Or executive produced by Steven Spielberg, ladies and gentlemen, yeah, the man yeah. who also brought you racist depictions of indigenous people throughout the Indiana Jones films. Yeah, oh God. Anyways, those are really great. Um, Pinocchio was mm-hmm. beautiful. And again, thinking about children and the way that their minds work and the kinds of yeah things we prescribe or push onto them. Really great pairing. I like that, Kevin. Thank you. Can this be a modern Hollywood remake? Yeah, I don't see why not. Like it's a it's it's not like it's specifically tied to Iran. Like you could you could definitely make a Hollywood film out of it. Do you think the plot's too simple? I don't think so. Yeah, it's almost like the simplicity makes it more um actually palatable for an adaptation because you could sort of I would again if I want if I heard they were making Hollywood remake, I wouldn't want them to take it outside. I would not want them to make it outside of Iran. Like it would still be. Set. I mean, that's the case with with all of these. Like I, I feel like every time we ask this question, we always say that it should be somehow tied to Iran or have Iranian filmmakers involved. But I think that's more of the the ethical answer as opposed to yeah. Would it work financially? Yeah. I think it could. I mean, what I think of with this question is, can it be remade today with a higher budget, really? Mm-hmm. That's the only, like, I only use Hollywood as, like, a, in quotes, like, big budget studio film. Right. They did the sequel. Like, you should see the screenshots or at least watch a few minutes of it on the on YouTube. Like, the sequel is, the production values, the mice look really good. Honestly, you guys should check it out right now and I get your reactions on this thing. Because just go to YouTube. I'm pulling it up right just now. Just watch a few seconds. Oh, I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah. It looks too good. Not janky enough for you? Oh, they have cars. Yeah, it looks great. Like, actually, it looks too good for me. I'm like, oh, I don't <laughs> like this. There's scenes of them swimming in the water and stuff, too. Oh, their village is so beautiful and kind it's of It's very traditional. beautiful. Yeah. It's colorful. It gives way more color in it. Oh, wow. They have stairs. This is beautiful. I'm going to watch this. I'm going to show it to my kids. Oh, my God. They have, like, an orchestra or something. I see. You weren't lying, Kaveh. Where's Kopol? Last, okay, final grades and thoughts. Okay, I think thematically, it's very rich and remains relevant. And I think that, you know, the depiction of mice is very humanizing. <laughs> like they're they're rich and they're very loving and it doesn't, it generally avoids tropes. But then there's problems in terms of portrayal of gender and the other um, in terms of the mouse and stuff like the the Japanese mouse. So those are, that's, that's where it could improve. Um, And again, taking into consideration the time when it came out and how it is timeless, like the puppets, the characters, um, I I gave it a 90. So an A. An A, I'm sorry. Yes. Oh, that's okay. Oh, actually, you know what? I'm going to give it an A plus. Because oh. the the mute like I'm very picky about music, like if if it's a musical and the music's trash, but I think the music in this is excellent. It's beautiful. It's memorable. It's the, the lyrics are poetics. So I would give it an A plus. I think the film deserves a lot of credit. Marzia Buruman, Mohammed Al Talebi, who are the directors, deserve a lot of credit for putting this together. It's whimsical. It's made with a lot of passion. You can tell. It at times looks like it was done on a less than ideal budget, even though 1.2 million toman at the time was, you know, a great amount. 
lacking in some areas in terms of voice acting for me preferable and a little bit of the uh, problematic stereotypes of some of the more entertaining characters because I will admit <laughs> that characters entertaining but like deeply problematic <laughs> cute whimsical charming all around I have to give it a B solid oh. B wow this film for me I think does a really good job of tackling these very mature themes for children. And I think especially given the context that it came out with children who were growing up in a society where there was this constant fear looming over everybody, especially with the war, with children who were emigrating, or maybe they had relatives who were emigrating. I think that this film did an excellent job at contextualizing some of those things for children. Like Marl said, the music in the film I thought was also very good. I constantly found myself humming the songs afterwards. Even years and years later, I would be just thinking of the, the songs. Although the, the characters, their voices sound very similar, their idiosyncrasies were enough for me to feel as though there was a rich tapestry of various characters. And it, and it felt very much like I was walking into a room where there were already well-established dynamics between a group of friends, which made me want to spend more time with these characters, more time with these group of friends for the reasons that both of you have already mentioned um, in terms of the stereotypes, uh, the, ra the racist stereotypes, and also the representation of the female characters in the film. I'm docking a few points from it, but I'm still giving it a very high grade because I value the film for everything that it has done for uh, for children of Iran, especially during that time. So for me, A+. plus. Just a question not to be antagonistic. Do it. Be antagonistic. Marl, maybe I'll ask you and I will ignore Farhan's answer because you are an academic. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Both of you, I want to know. How much do you think, do you think a certain percentage of your enthusiasm for this is driven by nostalgia? A million percent because... That's what I use to evaluate, to think how powerful, like it's it's a tool I can use to evaluate this film that I can't with other films, for example. Yeah, of course. Like I think, oh, this has longevity. It has, you know, it's, it's, it's relevance and it's um, poignancy remains so I can afford myself. Yeah. The, the, yeah. I mean, it's maybe ridiculous to give this film an A plus, <laughs> but. There's nothing wrong with but, it. No, I'm just, and there's nothing wrong with even it being driven by nostalgia. That's fine. Like there's so many, I have my versions of things. I mean, like I have like too. anecdotal data for me in my own lived experience to say this film stands the test of time. <laughs> now, does it stand the test of time if I show it to some kid off the street? They'll be like, look at these janky puppets, as you said. <laughs> but also you're coming from this from a contextual background of your academic expertise that literally yeah. deals with refugees and displacement and diasporas and yeah, you know what actually, i mean so it, actually i was like i should write a paper on this film so, <laughs> so i'm was, surprised you haven't already i know and actually Kevin, when you were talking about having a difficulty finding um like critical responses to the film i was wondering i was like oh maybe i should maybe look up in journal articles to see if i can find if there's been any research ac academic because that's not as easily accessible through other search engines if i find something i'll pass it on to you that brings our average score of City of Mice to an A minus. Sorry. I'm happy with that. I feel like that's fair. I feel like that's fair. City of Mice. It's the Muppets 
of Iranian cinema in the 1980s. It's puppeteering at its highest level. It is creativity and charm at its peak. And its voice acting is perhaps at its most mediocre. But it's very highly deserved of the high praise and A plus it got. It's, it, it might be fueled with some nostalgia, but definitely a charming, whimsical, Disney-esque story that has parables of, of displacement and, and political pressures that are relevant even today. So I would strongly encourage if you can find a version that's either uh, subbed, you got subtitles, or if you speak Farsi fluently, please check out this film. And then maybe go on and watch the sequel, City of Mice 2, which we will all be doing. Maybe we'll do a future podcast in season five of this podcast. Farn? I would like to just take a moment to thank Dr. Maral Aguilera Moradipur for coming on the podcast as our very special guest. It didn't even occur to me how much your academic background fit the themes of this film (laughs) because the parallels between the themes of this film and the real world were completely lost on me because the last time I saw this, I was like 11 years old. But watching it again now, I'm I'm very happy and very grateful that you were here to to express your reading of the film. So thank you so much for for being here and for your time, Mara. Thank you for having me. Thank you, and and look at us going the entire podcast without mentioning once that you are related to Christina Aguilera. I mean, it was very impressive. Well, you didn't want to bring nepotism into it, so I appreciate that, Carla. <laughs> thank you very much uh, for all you listeners, Mara. Thank you. Farhan, you know how I feel about you. And to all our listeners, but Omida Didar. Bye. Music for Cinema Rex was written and performed by Soheda Set in the Chart.